last week we, we spent some time talking about um, the power of choice. The power of choice. And, and where some of those choices can lead. And, and some of them, you know, um, in the midst of us walking in obedience to God and hearing him clearly uh, and doing our part, uh, how that meets with the transcendent, guiding, loving hand of God to shepherd us into places where we meet and make incredible destinies uh, for ourselves. Today, I want us to spend a little time now talking about not the power of choice, but the power of kindness. The power of kindness. Um, so we're not going to be theological today. All right? We're going to be very basic. Uh, it's nothing difficult. It's nothing that you don't know or don't understand or haven't experienced. But the power of kindness. And that, in, in short, is how using words that bless. You know, the power of kindness. And I want us to, to have a look at uh, two conversations. One, I call it a life-giving conversation. Another one, I call it a life-killing conversation. So two extremes, two conversations. And maybe as we discuss, you can see uh, which conversation best um, expresses where you're at or represents who you are and, and what's going on in your life right now. Is it the life-giving conversation or is it the life-killing conversation? And I believe that you can find yourself framed in one of these conversations and it's good to be honest and say, I think this is where I am um, and I'd like to do something about it. In coming up with this, uh, we'd had a conversation with my, in, in my office and uh, um, Pastor Marenge asked, uh, you know, said, said a statement that was, you know, stood out. Um, and I want us to consider that statement. Um, he said, you know, for most of us men, um, we, we say that my marriage is the most important thing in my life. And we say it with conviction. And by the way, we mean it. Eh? My marriage is the most important thing in my life. And, and we talked a little bit about that and asked ourselves, is it true? Um, for me, I can only speak for myself. Um, I realized at a deep core level, I do believe it completely. And, and I believe it because I imagine what is the worst case scenario. And I said, if I was to lose my marriage, if my wife was to walk out on me and say, you know, you are intolerable, you know, irreconcilable differences, I'm out of here. I realized at that moment that my life would begin to unravel. That, that I, I, don't, I don't know how I would handle my life without her. I don't know how to live without her. And my life would begin to unravel. And it would begin to unravel not just because I'm not talking about my reputation as a pastor or the fact that I've been in the public ministry for long. That's not all. I'm talking about at a personal level. I wouldn't know what to do with myself because I've never been defined outside of her now for the longest. We've been married longer, way longer than we have been not married. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. We married in our early 20s. Now we've been married for 36 years. So, you see, I've been married longer than I've not been married. <laughs> English is hard. Okay? So, I wouldn't know how to define myself. And my life would begin to unravel. Now, the question was this. 
given those, that statement to be a, um, a truism, let's, you know, at a core level, I believe it. Then I wondered, if you observed me in action, in words, in behavior, as I relate to my wife in that marriage, would that statement be true? In other words, do, does my interaction with, with Maggie, her, my conversations, my, you know, my love, my expressions, do they validate that statement? Would you be say, able to say, wow, look at him, truly, this marriage is the most important thing in his life. So I, I want us to address the gap that exists sometimes between what we proclaim with much conviction and what we actually do, where we live on a daily basis. Because that's a real test. Somebody said that you, what you do speaks so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. Okay? That what you, what you do speaks so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. In other words, I can protest all I want that marriage is the most, this marriage is the most important thing in my life, but when you look at what I do, it could stand in strict contradiction to that statement. Because actions, like they say, do tend to speak louder than words. Now then, the first conversation. We'll not go outside of anything we've discussed because it's familiar territory already, and we'll go back to the book of Ruth and then listen with the ears of um, the power of kindness. Listen with those ears. Um, not the, the power of destiny, just the, the power of, 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 of kindness. So we are in Ruth chapter 2 uh, from verse 8. Again, we know the backstory and what is going on. Boaz has come in, found this kagal. She's gleaning, you know, in his field. Has made a few inquiries and then has decided to engage her. In a conversation. Here's a conversation. So Boaz, from verse 8, said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along with the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink. From the water jars, the men have filled. That's, that's what he says. He hasn't done anything. He just said it. Okay, now, watch her reaction. As you consider the power of kindness. At this, just the words, at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. Those words had the power to change her physical posture and she went down and bowed with her face to the ground. A position of prostrating herself in utter humility. You would call it submission. He didn't demand it. He didn't command it. But he got it. Just by the power of kindness. She bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told 
all about you. All what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. Phrased another way, may the Lord repay you for your kindness to your mother-in-law. What you did has been told to me. You are a kind woman. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In other words, may your kindness be rewarded by God. She replies, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in this wine vinegar. So let me continue showing kindness to you. The power of kindness. To change even a physical posture and cause her to submit before him without being asked. And in his own response, he's saying, you deserve nothing but kindness because I know how kind you have been to your mother-in-law. You didn't have to, but the things you have done, they have reached us. We know what kind of a person you are. You're a kind person. And you are deserving of nothing but more kindness. So that marks the first conversation. The words spoken, the gestures, and a very deep heart-to-heart -heart exchange. A life-giving conversation. I call it life-giving because we know where this conversation will lead. Eventually, of these two will be born Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. By extension, the father of Jesus, the Messiah. By extension, many children born into the kingdom. Life-giving conversations. Second conversation, let's consider this. Again, not unfamiliar. This one will be found in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 6. The backstory is that the Ark of God's covenant had been stolen, or, or not stolen, but taken by the Philistines after they had conquered Israel when they had messed up and God had abandoned them. And it's been in Philistine enemy territory for long, and now it's time to bring it back. Because God had afflicted the Philistines, they had voluntarily decided to bring it back. On the first occasion, it was a failed occasion, they tried to bring the Ark of God's covenant back. They placed it on, a, in an, on an oxen, an ox-driven cart. And, and as the ox, oxen are, you know, going, the ark is trembling. And then there's, you know, and shaking. And this guy called Uzzah, because he's been dwelling in his father's house, Aminadab, you know, he sees that this thing is going to fall. So he reaches out to support God. Support God. 
And what happens? He's zapped and he dies there on the spot. David, who was in front of the entourage and dancing and excited, is angry and, 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 and scared and he withdraws. He's like, whoa, hang on. This was supposed to be a celebration. God, we are doing something good. This is for you. Why are you killing this guy? But you see, God does not compromise his standards. He had given very clear instructions about how the Ark of the Covenant is to be handled. It was never to be placed on an oxen. It was to be carried by Levites. There were poles designed for that. There were Levites supposed to be there. Nobody was to come. Even the high priest could not touch that without blood. God's standards. So he dies. And so David leaves the Ark and then he goes back to Jerusalem. He's in mourning. Then after some time, he's told, hey, by the way, you remember where we left the ark? That guy's household has been so blessed by God. Yeah. You know? So he gathers some courage. He says, well, maybe this is a sign. I'm going to make another attempt. And he goes back. And this is the time now he's going to take back the ark of the covenant in celebration back to the city of David. So let's catch the story from there around verse 12. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Just six steps. Because this thing is going well. There's, nobody has died, you know? So, whoa, I think we, we've incurred God's favor. And, and David, the reason he was called a man after God's own heart, he was meticulous and careful. When he made his mistakes and his blunders, he paid a high price, but he learned from it. So now six steps, seven is a step of completion. You're going all the way. So six steps, goja, wait, not another step. Let us first sacrifice to the Lord. Let us incur his favor. And they do that. And, 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 and you can see the intensity of this. The, the Bible says, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trans, uh, trumpets. So God has accepted us. It's a celebration. Let us party. And he's dancing with all his might. Drop it like it's hot. You know, really serious dancing. Songs have been made about this thing, you know? As the ark of the Lord, you, see, you should, dancing is good with all your might, but for the right person and in front of the right audience and for the right reasons. Okay? That's how you should dance. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, this is his wife, watched from a window. And when she saw Dave, King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Okay? So, so very, very contradictory picture. She, she's at a distance. She's watching from a window. So you're wondering, where, why isn't she there? You know, why isn't she celebrating the return of the Ark of the Covenant? And she, this is the queen, you know? Because she's, she's Michal, this is his first wife. 
but she's watching from a window. And when she sees the celebration and his dancing in particular, she despised him in her heart. So it's not even uh, vocalized. It's something that is happening inside. And, and married couples, we know this because sometimes you're going through what we call the winter season in your marriage. You've grown, drifted apart. You're distant from each other. Um, there are issues. Things have been said in the past. There's been unforgiveness. There's anger. There's even resentment. So even something small can be magnified a thousand times. Because what he was doing is not bad. But even that could not elicit joy uh, from her heart. She despised him. Much, much earlier, you know, she was so in love with this guy that even though the king wanted to give David his um, Merab, his firstborn daughter, it was told to the king that Michal is in love with David. So it could be said. And if he danced at this time, she would have thought, oh my goodness, you're so awesome. My goodness. You know, you're such a dancer. You know? She would have thought that. Yeah? But over the years, something has happened. And now, even what he does, doesn't elicit any joy. She looks at him, and what, what's he doing? You know? So she despises him in her heart. She won't join him in the celebration. And you can tell it's a very big deal for David to be here and leading this procession in great joy. So anyway, the story continues. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in, the place, in, uh, in his place in the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, um, a cake of raisins, and a cake, um, a, cake, uh, a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israel, the Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. So a great act of, act of generosity. Everybody goes with something. He wants them to know God has done amazing things among us. And everybody goes home blessed by the king. And, and they will be talking about how great the king is and how generous he has been to them. When David returned home to bless his household... Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. D do you hear the sarcasm? Yeah? It's, 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 they don't write, record it here, but it's preceded by missed you. Mm. <laughs> you know? The, the Nigerians would do it right, you know? How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Just hear those words. Stinging to the heart. And the guy must be shocked because he's coming to bless his household. Those are the first words that meet him at the door. David is not one to be hit while still lying down, so he's going to give her as much as he gets. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Babako, huyo. Hey, sasa mimi ndio. Not that father of yours. 
You know, when you mention somebody's father, it's very personal. Your people. What eh? when? So he knows what he's doing also. Yeah? He's hitting back. Who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me as ruler of the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I'll become eh, even more undignified than this. That's where you drop it like it's hot, you know. Eh? And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. So he's hitting back really hard. And listen to this. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. That's why I call them life-killing conversations. The Bible doesn't give us the details. We don't know why. Uh, whether she now became barren as a divine uh, executive order from God or that they simply never became sexually intimate again from that day onwards. And they probably lived in different rooms. That happens with couples. But it's a life-killing conversation. Full of anger, bitterness, sarcasm, you know. And, 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 and again, let, let me take us back to... to to, to what we, we are discussing today. Which of these conversations would frame you more accurately? Where, where would you find yourself? Where you're at right now, especially if you're married? Let's assume you walk into your home, you know? On an ordinary day, you've been working, it's a hard day, you know, this is me, I'm walking into my house, you know, and um, Maggie is right there in the kitchen, she was making something, and maybe the kids, you have to, you know, maybe we have, to go 15 years for me, back, for the kids to be in the house. So, but they're there anyway. But what happens? What happens? Does she look and say, Allah, you're home early today. What happened? I thought you had a long day. Okay, do you, and then I'm walking towards her, and, and as I'm walking, uh, what happens to the kids? Do they look at me and the dad has come home? Before I get to her, they've intercepted me. Oh, daddy, look at this. And, and we're all over. And I go hug her, give her a kiss, you know. She asks, are you hungry? You know, would you like, just sit down, let me whip you a cup of tea. Is that what happens? <laughs> or do I walk in and maybe she catches a glimpse of me coming from the, the corner, looks away and continues doing whatever she was doing what about the kids? Do they look and then somehow body language can tell you they tense? They either continue doing what they are doing or walk away to their bedrooms with that face that our day just got ruined. Dad is home. <laughs> you know, one of those things will happen depending on where you're at. Um, I, I thought it, it might be a good thing for us to do a kindness audit, all right? Let me ask you a few things. Are you kinder to your work colleagues than you are to your spouse and to your children? Are you kinder to those that you work with than to your spouse and your children? Are you nicer to your social friends and buddies around the estate than you are to your family? Are you that generous person who everyone goes to because you are so helpful 
You're always, you know, you're very giving. You're giving of your time. You're giving of your advice. You're giving of your skills. If somebody's stuck, you go to Baba so-and-so or Mama so-and-so. They will sort you out. And you have built a reputation that is bigger than life around those who are outside. And they know you too. In fact, they look at your family and they say, they are so lucky. My goodness. You know, that family must be so blessed to have such a mom, to have such a dad. But your family members are yet to experience your kindness or your warmth. That's something that has remained foreign to them. They hear it with outside, outsiders. They don't experience it. To them, you remain that cold, distant, disengaged parent or spouse, husband or wife. And when you're in your house, you're probably always on your phone. Or you go to pick the remote, go and watch news. When you speak, you're shouting commands and telling them to shut up. You're listening to something important. You know? In this kindness audit, if, you, if your spouse does something good or that appears considerate, towards you, what's your reaction? Does it make you feel uncomfortable because you may have to say thank you to them? They've done something nice, but now you're stuck, now what do I do? Do I thank them? <laughs> and it makes you uneasy. You're uncomfortable. It's unfamiliar territory to thank your spouse. If you do something bad to them, do you struggle to apologize? Do you struggle to say, I'm sorry? Do you struggle to say, forgive me? And if the roles are reversed and they do something wrong to you, do you demand an apology from them? Never mind that it's a struggle for you to give one. Are you kind? And if they do something wrong to you, is that the day that you are eager to come home early? So that you may expose them and their ways and give them a piece of your mind. How about your communication? How does it do in the audit of kindness? When your spouse asks a question to you, do you keep your responses to a bare minimum? Do you answer in monosyllables? Or worse still, do you ignore them all together and move on with business as usual, leaving their question unanswered? In a sense to tell them, you are unworthy of my audience or my response. Do you answer back rudely to a routine question? Is rudeness part of your vocabulary? Do you use sarcasm to cut down your spouse's ideas, suggestions, or opinions? We've seen what sarcasm does. That's what Micah did. How the king of Israel has dignified himself today. Do you use curse words, insults, 
or indecent language to demean your spouse when you are in conflict situations. Do your arguments regularly degenerate to emotional or physical abuse when you cannot agree? And if any of this describe you, then what you have is not a marriage. That's not what God had in mind. You have warfare. Yes, you can go to the army and enlist and you'll be taken to Ukraine and you'll be quite at home. Because there you don't have to show kindness. In fact, your vocabulary is termed in terms of, you know, these are the enemy lines. Those are the people we are fighting. God never had that in mind. And marriage was a place of dignity, security, comfort, love. It's a place where after work you can't wait to sign the last check so that you close your books and you run there. So that you can catch up with your spouse. How has your day been? It's the one place that you can hoosah and breathe and be yourself because you know you'll be accepted and you will be loved and you will be dignified. And even if you don't have something very profound to say, you can speak your nonsense and it will be acceptable. And it will not be demeaned. That's what God had in mind about marriage. And so this kindness audit may reveal a lot about where you are at. Let me, let me um, read to you. First Peter chapter 3 from verse 7 following says this. Again, I want to say this. When, when I'm talking mostly, I talk from a husband's point of view because that's who I am. You know, I'm not a wife. <laughs> so I, I only do marriage from a husband's perspective. So I'm more acquainted with the responsibilities of the man than the woman. And I'm not saying that women should not take the same audit on themselves as wives. Right? It's, it, it, so it works both. It's just that my perspective is more biased towards the man. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Be considerate. And treat them with respect. So, so God expects that I will treat Maggie with respect because she's respect worthy. And I said last week, she's his daughter before she was my wife. And how I treat her matters to God. All right? Treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I don't want to in, indulge and engage in spiritual activities that are going nowhere because God has already said no to me based on how I behave at home. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. He's saying you have a responsibility before me in the way that you behave. The fact that I was insulted does not mean then I will insult back. That's, that's not how it works. That situation will just degenerate into something uncontrollable. And before I know it, I have sinned before God, before my spouse, and I'm ruining that, that treasured institution that God holds in high esteem. 
Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. I want to inherit a blessing. And he says, this was your calling. I called you to this. And I want to bless you. But God is saying, you have to behave yourself in a way that you are blessable. And you are responsible for how you react. Because whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. What I speak is my responsibility 100%. They must turn from evil and do good. They must turn. I'm a responsible human being. I can make choices to do what is right. I'm not obligated to answer evil with evil. They must seek peace and pursue it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. God sweetens the deal. So that I don't escalate an already bad situation. He expects me to be a peacemaker. And where peace is evasive, I pursue it. So I'm supposed to be aggressive about it. And I'm supposed to be, um, to take initiative, to pursue peace. She did this, therefore I will do that. So how, how sometimes we react, because she did this now, I'm already thinking of how to hit back. That directly contradicts the word of God and his expectations of me. I'm supposed to be a peacemaker. We've been peacemakers in Sudan for long until one of our politicians opened his mouth and babbled some nonsense. And Kenya now is excluded. They said, we don't want Kenya on the peace table. Because somebody talked about, oh, Sidri invading, you know? That's irresponsible. We behave like that sometimes to our spouses. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. Do you hear that? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. It's like the prayers that we said here. God heard them. Now Sharon is landed in Germany. He's saying, what you did was right. I want to encourage you. Keep doing that. You said the truth about me, that I am her father. And now I, I have to prove that. You want to know that your prayers are not just empty spiritual activities, that your prayers are actually being heard and they are going somewhere because you have aligned yourself with the will of God and you're doing what God has requested you to do and you're joyful about it. But his face, the face of the Lord, is against those who do evil. Do not put yourself in a position where the face of God is against you because you cannot win. You can't win that battle and you'll be miserable. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. There you are. But Lord, I'm in this marriage, things are not going well, but you know what? I will still honor you. I will do what is right. And God says, I bless you, my child. What you're doing is right. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. 
So you're not doing it because you're afraid. You're doing it because you want to honor God. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this sorry, with gentleness and respect. There it is again. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. In your heart, revere Christ or set aside Christ as Lord. In other words, how I behave is a direct testimony and speaks volumes about my relationship with Christ. And because I'm fully submitted to Christ, I will honor my wife, I will honor my marriage, I will behave right. Not because of myself. And not even because of my spouse. That she's a secondary beneficiary of my primary submission to Jesus. And if that relationship has been aligned correctly, then it becomes easy for me to express this vertical relationship, this horizontal relationship with my wife. Because what God gives here are no suggestions. They are his commands. He says, respect your wife, honor her. Do what is right by me. Finally, Ephesians chapter 4 is interesting because what Paul is doing is giving us what he calls rules for Christian living. He's saying, because you're believers, there are basic or bare minimums. There are things that you must do because you're believers. All right? So, so there's a way that we behave because we are a peculiar people. And God gives us the honorable and onerous task and responsibility of living out our lives because we are a chosen people. We are a holy nation. We are a people belonging to God. So we live by certain rules so that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are people who witness about God's goodness in our lives. So he says, there's a way that you must live. And this is how I want you to live, he says. Listen to chapter 4 of Ephesians. As a prisoner for the Lord. So I'm already submitted fully to Christ. I'm captivated by him. And I want to please him. Then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Many of the lives we live are not worthy of the calling that we have received. We are nominal in our life, meaning we are Christian by name only and not by practice. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And here he's not talking about spouses. He's just saying because you're Christians, this is how you should behave to, to each other. You should be loving and kind and gracious and all this. How much more to those that we claim we are married to? Those we say, this is the most important person in my life. And this marriage, the most important institution, the most important thing in my life. Then he says this from verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. He's talking about the body of believers, all of us. So there are those who are called to different offices, 
Why? To prepare God's people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. It's a call to grow up. And he's saying, some of the behavior I'm seeing, you are not growing up. And we cannot be, continue behaving like children, giving an, an, a negative opinion and, 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 and living in a way that brings to shame the name of God and the institution that is the most important institution on earth because it mirrors his relationship with us. So he says, I want you to be mature. That's why I've given you people to equip you. Attaining to the measure, to, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants. Tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. When you look at somehow some of us leave out our marriage, you wonder, where are we getting the script for that? Because it doesn't exist. This is the owner's manual for how marriage should be done. And nowhere does it say that you should clobber your wife or your husband. You should insult them and answer them rudely. You should demean them and be sarcastic. You should be angry, bitter, and unforgiving. Nowhere does it say that. So where is that script coming from? And that's why he's saying you're following other doctrines that are being taught wuko in the scheming and deceptiveness of men. And you've neglected the word of God that teaches us how we need to behave in order for this institution to stand. Instead of, instead of those other doctrines, speaking the truth in love, we will be in all things, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows up and builds itself in love as each part does its work. So I'll do my work, my wife has to do her work in making this institution what God meant it to be in the first place. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. There are people who don't believe. So for them, anything goes. That's not us. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. In Christianity, only there does God say, I see how you're behaving, and you know what I will do? I will exchange your heart of stone, because you've hardened your heart, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. So even that is available. If over the years your heart has become so hardened that it is impervious to reason, that you will not hear your spouse, you will not hear your children, God says, you come to me. I will not even find fault. I won't even blame you. Just be honest and say, Lord, I, I'm just, even me, I don't like myself. God will say, okay, fine, what do you want? Give me a heart that feels. Give me a heart that is kind. Give me a heart that responds to you. And God says, yes, I can do that. I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll take away your heart of stone. And you will begin to respond and to hear me and to do things that will honor me and represent me well where I have placed you. God does that. He does that and he will not find fault. You, however, verse 20, 
did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What an honor. You are created to be like God in all holiness, all righteousness. You have the capacity to love as God loves. You have the capacity to show kindness as God shows kindness. He says it himself. This is your potential, he says. So stop living like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, in the hardening of their hearts. We have no excuse for the things that we do. Resources are available for us to live in a God-glorifying and spouse-blessing manner. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Anger is no excuse for violence and for sin and for vulgar language. Why we are created in God's image and we have the capacity to do something about it. Yes, you made me angry, but you know what? That doesn't define me. This doesn't have to degenerate into an argument of name calling. I have the power of choice. I will not sin, even if you sin against me. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, he says. So even anger is on a clock. You're not allowed to be angry indefinitely. And when you hear couples saying that we are kneeled by mouth one, two, three weeks down the road, we have not talked to each other for a month, those are choices you have made. God says, anger is on a clock. By sundown, deal with it before God. And say, you know, this cannot define me. Tomorrow we will have a different conversation. And I can choose to take the initiative. You know what? What you said of me yesterday was untrue. It was very hurtful. But you know what? I forgive you. Let's start a new conversation today. And you begin a new conversation. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. The theme of work has been dealt with many times. Again, it's one of those things that God keeps coming back to. Work for yourself, but work so that you have enough to give others. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You have an audience whenever you are. So if you hurl insults and talk rudely to one another, you are mentoring the next generation into ruination. They're going to be damaged children. Because you have mentored them into knowing that violence or insults or abuses are a way to communicate. It's not. He says whatever you say should benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the spirit of God. So it's beyond you. When you do those things, the person getting grieved is the Holy Spirit of God. 
for whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness. Again, you can take the initiative. You don't have to stay with anger, with unforgiveness, with bitterness. He says, get rid of it. You have the capacity to. You are created in my image. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate because you can't dwell in a vacuum. Once you have emptied yourself of the anger and the bitterness, replace them with kindness. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as Christ, as in Christ God has forgiven you. Again, God says, I've set you the model. This is the example. I was supposed to kill all of you. Instead, I came and died for you. Now you're redeemed. You belong to me and I love you. You go and do the same to your spouse and to those who you love. Finally, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice of God. So consider that, the power of kindness. Are you kind? Are you kind? And which of those two conversations define you? And in light of what God has commanded, how far have you deviated from his norm? And we know the horrible consequences that we have to pay when we refuse to obey. Does it shock you that so many times what we call marriage is not marriage at all? not in the eyes of God. And God sometimes looking from heaven looks and says, you don't represent me. That is not the institution that I made. A place of conflict and anger and fighting and brawling and all kinds of bitterness and unforgiveness, that's not marriage. And because it's not, you know what I'm going to do? I will allow a secular, legal, governmental organization to judge you by secular standards. And you, some of you, you bring your marriage before a secular judge who doesn't know God. He looks at what you're calling marriage. He says, mm -mm, it's not marriage. Actually, we are granting a divorce. That is being judged by a secular organization. Meaning, even by secular standards, you do not meet the basic minimums for what marriage should be. So why would God allow it? He says, no, this is not marriage. And I don't accept it because you are misrepresenting me. And because of that, I'll allow it to be annulled and I'll give my nod because government is authority appointed by God. And if we will not bow down to God's standard, then we find ourselves at the feet of secular governmental standards. And those judges and God upholds it. So consider again the power of kindness. It is a power of kindness that has the ability to reverse all this. Where there was hurt, there can be comfort. Where there was unforgiveness, there can be reconciliation. Where there was anger and harshness, there can be kindness. And where there was a cold marriage, people can come back together and embrace each other and say, I forgive you. I want to be reconciled to, to you because you know what? Deep down, I do love you and you're the most important person in my life. You have the power and the capacity to do that. Consider, again, 
the power of kindness. May the Lord bless you.